I've been a Christian now for many years. I became a Christian when I was nine years old. I am now not nine. All right? Uh, in fact, uh, I, I am uh, not going to be with you next week. Uh, I'm going to be preaching at my home church for the first time in about 15 years. Coach's going to be preaching for you next week, so you want to be here to hear him. I'm excited about what he's going to share. But I don't want you to miss this date because it's important. I won't be here to remind you. But in a week and a half, I will celebrate another birthday. I'm moving closer to you having a 40-year-old pastor. Now, I'm not there. I've still got four years. But I will turn 36. So I've been, uh, just by my estimation, uh, being 36 years old soon. I might as well just say I already am. All right? I, I became a Christian when I was nine. And so that's 20-something years, right? 20. Anybody want to do the math? No. 27 years, all right? And so I am still in process of becoming the person God intends for me to be. And soul renovation is something that lasts a lifetime, not a short period of time. And today what I want to do is I want to kind of pick up in some ways where we left off last week and talk this week about um, restoring or renovating relationships and unity and things around interacting with one another. And we're going to actually use a bit of a verse that I quoted last week. We're going to look at it in a larger context and what's actually happening around it. Because what I want you to understand is that part of our renovation is a renovation of our heart that impacts how we act when we come to worship the Lord and how we act around each other. Remember when Jesus was asked the greatest commandment? Remember they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And what did Jesus tell them? He told them two, actually, didn't he? What were the two? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right? So the first thing is to love God. And then what was the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. Alright, and so he says those are the two things. And so last week we talked about worship and how that worshiping God ought to impact how we live and that God has given us so much that we ought to be a people that are grateful and excited about life and about what God's doing and that it ought to pass through us into worship of our Heavenly Father, into His Son, and we ought to worship Him in complete and utter abandonment. And it ought to impact how we interact with one another. Well, this week we're going to delve further in how we interact with one another. Alright? And here's the thing that we're going to kind of build on. Last week I gave you a couple of, of statements that um, were kind of the, the, kind of the linchpins of it. And the ideas behind that were this, that criticism and complaint are the native tongue of the spiritually immature. And what we talked about some last week was about how God has given us so much and that God has blessed us with so much, that God has done so much for us and God is so great and awesome that our lives ought to be centered in giving praise and honor and glory unto Him. But it ought to flow out as well into our relationships with others. And if you remember last week, I said the kind of the corollary to that or the statement that comes alongside that one is this, that worship and encouragement are the native tongue of the spiritually mature. 
And so if you're someone who is walking with the Lord, growing in your faith and your knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and His grace and mercy, if you're someone walking in that way, what happens is you naturally become a person who gives praise and honor and glory unto God, but you also become a person who naturally encourages other people, builds them up into who they are in the faith, and helps to create and maintain good relationships among God's people. And so... If criticism and complaint are the native tongue of the spiritually immature, and worship and encouragement are the native tongue of the spiritually mature, the question is, well, how does that work out in our relationships with one another? We come to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is actually an interesting passage because in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 through 3, he is bridging the gap between this great theological statement about who God is and what God has done. And then the rest of the book of Ephesians is going to be what do we do about it? And in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, Paul says, we're not going to focus here, we're actually going to focus a little later, but I want you to see this. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. He says, because of what God has done, because of how great He is, because that He has brought you from death unto life, that He has seated you in the heavenlies with Him, because of that, you need to live your life, or walk worthy, or have a life that is showing of that. Verse 2 says, with humility and gentleness, patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. Now, if you're there in Ephesians chapter 4, if you're actually in Scripture, I want you to get to verse 25, because that's where we're going to be focusing starting there. If you're using the Version app on your phone or your iPad or tablet or any of that, then you, that's what the verses are that are there. And this is what I want us to see. Paul, in those verses that we're not going to read, basically says this. If you're a follower of Jesus, your life has moved from selfish to unselfish. From the concerns of who you are to the concerns of the body of Christ. And that moving from immaturity in the Lord to maturity in the Lord is going from a place of concern about what you're getting to a place of what can I do to help build the body of Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 4, he's going to give this whole comparison of the old life versus the new life. And we're not going to delve into that, but in verse 25, what he basically says is this. If that's happened, if you have moved from the old life into the new life, then this is how you interact with one another. This is how you interact with the people in your community of faith. Now, I want you to know right from the beginning, at the end of the service today, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. We're going to eat the Lord's Supper together. And the way we're doing it this this morning will be very similar to the way that we always do it. Now, I know the chairs are harder, and the lights are different, and we're a little closer together, but it'll be very similar. Deacons are going to come around. They're going to pass the, the plates. You're going to take the elements. We're going to take them together. It's not like how they did it in the first century church, though. You realize in the first century church, they didn't have a Lord's Supper table that was carved out for them that they put in the front of a worship building. They didn't have a worship building. And most often what would happen is that they would get together and have a big meal. 
And as they had a big meal, at the end of the meal, they would get together and they would begin to share the elements. And the whole point was, we are sharing this together as a community. One of the things I think can get lost, just to be honest with you, in the way that we do the Lord's Supper, and listen, it's the way that I've done the Lord's Supper since I was... I don't know why the phrase knee-high to a grasshopper just came to mind. That's one of those old country phrases, right? When I was a little bitty, when I was young, that's just the way we've done it. But sometimes what it gives to, and even I've preached sermons this way, I've done this myself, is that when the Lord's Supper elements come around, I almost kind of of put a wall around myself and say, I'm going to search my own heart, I'm going to have time with the Lord right now and see if I'm ready, and I'm going to remember the elements and remember what's happening here. That is an important part. But a more important part at times is to remember that we take it as a community of believers. And that as we're doing it, it is signifying the one thing that brings us all together. Listen, when I look around this room, we're different, aren't we? Now, I mean, on the outside, sometimes people will look around and go, no, y'all are all kind of the same. But we're different. I mean, we like different things. We, we go to different restaurants. We like different kinds of foods. In fact, um, some of you like foods that I would never in my life try. Um, some, of, some of you would think that because I like to eat chicken hearts when I go to Brazil, that that's strange. All right? Um, there are just differences there. We, we like different kinds of music. If you didn't believe that, you should have just heard the discussion on the Monday after the first time we were in here. All right? We like different kinds of music. We're different in who we are. Um, We're different in the kind of TV shows we watch, the kind of entertainment we enjoy, the sizes of our family, where we go, where we went to school, where we like to go, the kind of leisure activities. Some of you actually like teams other than the Tennessee Volunteers. It's an amazing thing to me. But the reason we're all here today, or should be, is because of Jesus Christ. And what is represented in this meal. And what Paul is going to tell these people who may have been reading this letter while gathered around getting ready to partake of this meal is this, if you really love Jesus, this ought to be how you interact with one another on a regular basis. Verse 25 says this, Since you put away lying, I love the fact that Paul just kind of says, since you don't lie anymore, speak the truth each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another. First thing Paul says is simply speak the truth. The idea there is, is when you're interactions with each other, we are to speak the truth. Now, here's an interesting thing. Since it says, since you put away lying, the word there is actually pseudo. In English, you would write it P-S-E-U-D-O. The idea there is if, if you have something that is pseudo, it means it's a false or an imitation or kind of like, but not really. And we even use that today in things. It's a pseudo-transformation or it's a, a pseudo kind of thing. We, we talk about it like it's an imitation. It's a pale representation. And he says you had this falsehood, but as the falsehood is gone, it should be replaced with truth. That which is true, right, or correct. Now here's where we have to be real careful though. What Paul is saying here is we ought to speak things that flow out of the truth of who God is and what His Word says. Not what I personally think is true. 
We speak the truth based on what God's Word is and says, not what I think ought to be true or is true. If your phrase is, because people, people will use this verse to mean, well, I can say anything I want to say if I think it's true. And if your phrase starts with, well, I think that, you have to question whether it's a truth that comes from the Lord or if it's something that you believe. Now, if it's based in the Lord and who He is, then absolutely speak the truth. But it says that what it means here is that innuendo and gossip and things that come from your mind shouldn't characterize your conversation. But things that are of the Lord should. This actually is a direct quotation of Zechariah 8.16 where God is telling the people, when I bring you back to the new Jerusalem, when I bring you back to a new covenant, what is going to happen is the people in my community will speak truth to one another. And the idea is that we will be honest about the gospel with each other. So the first thing that we are called to do in our relationships with each other is to speak the truth. Here's the second thing. We need to learn to control our anger. Verse 26 says this, and it's a direct quotation of Psalm 4.4. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sin go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. The idea here is literally that we will be angry. In fact... What Paul almost says here, he comes right up to the edge of, in quoting this and the way he does it, to say, it's okay to get good and angry. Anybody been angry recently? I have. Anger is sometimes something you can't control it coming into your life, right? I mean, something says something and immediately the fire boils inside. Right? You see something on TV and you're like, ah. Or you read something in the newspaper, I can't believe they would say that. Anger just happens. But the question is, what do you do with it? He says, in your anger, or be angry and do not sin. The question is not whether you're going to get angry, but how you respond and react to it. You know it's amazing that most people, when you ask them, did you say, if you were just to have the general question, have you ever said anything you regret? Anybody ever said anything you regret? Do you know most of the times in my life when I've said things that I regret, you know what the emotion is that leads to that? Anger. Being upset. Rarely when I sit down for two or three days and really think about what I'm going to say, do I suddenly spout out something that I regret. The idea is to control it. To think about what you're going to say. At the same time, it's also to let go of it quickly. It says, don't let the sun go down. The idea there is, now listen, this doesn't mean if you're a married couple and it's sundown is at 828 and you get mad at each other at 826 that you have to go, hey listen, we've got to deal with this right now. The sun's going to go down. Because that might make the other person more angry, right? The idea is you don't let it linger. Why? Because it says... That God doesn't work through a heart that anger is a resident. The way it says it here is that anger in your life can allow Satan to have a foothold, a beachhead, 
a starting point in your life. Here's number three. We got five of these. We're going to go quickly, all right? Number three. Do your part. Verse 28, and this is going to sound kind of crazy when we start for the do your part because that talks about stealing. But verse 28 says, The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Now, there is an element of this passage that says, if you are a shoplifter or someone who steals, stop stealing. Alright? Can we agree on that? If you're stealing, stop it. Alright? So... Uh, you know, there are websites now dedicated to crazy church signs. Did you know that? And there was one this week I said, saw that said, To whoever stole our mower, God's going to get you. <laughs> it makes you want to return it, doesn't it? You know, how would you do that? Would you come down at the invitation and go, By the way, Pastor, the mower's in the back of my truck, all right? I repent. And there is this sense that in their community in those days, there may have been people coming to the faith. In fact, most people think that most of the people coming to the faith in this time were poor people. They didn't have a welfare system back there. So if you didn't have money to buy food to feed your children, guess what most people resorted to? Stealing. And he says, listen, if that's who you were, stop it. But then it says, and this is the interesting thing, and don't just stop stealing, so I'm not going to steal anymore, but do your part, work hard in both the church and in life in order that you can provide a blessing for other people. In fact, the word for labor there or for work there is to do something that will make you tired or to tire out or to grow weary. The idea literally is, if you are not a part of the work of the Lord in your local community of believers, you are on the fringes and you're taking more than you're giving. And what Paul means here, aside from the fact of just don't steal, is be an active part of doing in your community of believers. In fact, I would go so far to say metaphorically what he's saying here is that if you're not contributing on a regular basis to the community of believers, that's this church, that you are a part of, then you are stealing from the community. Now, that can be in a lot of ways. That can be in the time you give. That can be in the resources you provide. That can be in who you are, that can be in just a minute we're going to see and how you speak to other people. But the point is, part of what our responsibility is as a community of believers is to find our part and to do it consistently, regularly. One of my, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Nehemiah. You know the story of Nehemiah? Walls are destroyed around the city of Jerusalem. Walls were vital for that day. They had to have walls or people could come in and raid them and take whatever they wanted. It was a defense mechanism, and so they had these walls built around them. Well, Jerusalem's walls was destroyed. Nehemiah finds out. He goes to find out what's going on. He decides he's going to rebuild the wall. And this is what I love. In the book of Nehemiah, he just goes to all the people and he says, guess what? It's time to rebuild. And he starts assigning the families different places. If you look in, you don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. Nehemiah chapter 3, if you look there, the priest and the, and the, begin to rebuild. After that, others begin to rebuild. And then it starts listing these names. And for instance, it says the son of Hassanah built the fish gate. Uh, then it says in verse 6 that Jodiah, son of Pashas, repaired the old gate. 
They repaired it with beams. Next to them, the Gibbonite and the men of Pisbah, under the authority in the region, and they repaired. In verse 9, it says that they had a group that repaired different parts of the house. In verse 13, it says that Hanan and the inhabitants repaired the valley gate. And this is the one that I think is interesting, verse 14. It says, Malkikajah, which is not how you pronounce his name, but you can just go with it, because I don't know how. Son of Rechab, ruler over the district of beth That is how you pronounce that one. I know that one. Okay, So you've got a ruler over a district, Malkajah, and he repaired, anyone want to guess what he repairs? The Dung Gate. D-U-N-G. I don't really know what the Dung Gate was, and I've tried to look it up, but I'm going to guess it wasn't pleasant. Amen? I don't imagine on the day they had sign-ups that it was the first thing to go. Hey, 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 can I please have the dung gate? Y'all can have whatever else you want. I want the dung gate. But the way the Scripture teaches it, this ruler, get that, ruler, said the dung gate was not beneath him. I shared this in Deacon's meeting a couple of months ago now, I guess. And I talked about how that in the midst of this renovation, we're all going to have to do our part to make sure that we're moving together and sync together and make sure that everybody's kind of walking together and doing their part. And I kind of gave this reference here and just said, I love this. You don't see any place where he goes, man, I can't believe I got that. The idea is they worked with it with everything they had. And I kind of shared it and one of the deacons who remained nameless said, well, I'll take the dung gate if you've got it, all right? At that particular moment, we were talking about having to put porta potties in places because we weren't going to have enough bathrooms. But here's the idea behind it. Whether your job is the most prestigious you can find or it's the dung gate. What he says when he says that you are to do your part in laboring for the Lord over in Ephesians 4, he means that you do it with all that you have. And we're going to see through the rest of this passage that that part ought to be something that builds up the people in the community and the church itself. It shouldn't be detrimental and it shouldn't be destructive. It should be encouraging and building up. In fact, the fourth thing that Paul says in the way you relate to one another is you watch what you say or you watch your language. But it says in verse 29, this is the verse we read last week, it says, no rotten talk should come from your mouth. Here's the word rotten there. Let me just tell you what it was used for in their day. It was used for rotten wood, withered flowers, or rancid fish. I know that's encouraging not long before lunch, but the idea is that it is something that has no value anymore. What do you do with rotten wood? You throw it out. What do you do with withered flowers? What do you do with them? You throw them away. What do you do with rancid fish? Get it as far away as possible, right? It says, don't let any of the words coming out of your mouth be things that ought to be thrown away. Now, that means, watch your language. When I was growing up, this verse was always used to mean, don't cuss. 
And it means that. But it also means to not let talk come out of your mouth that can be detrimental or destructive to the people of God. In fact, that's the most obvious point that's made. He says, No rotten talk should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need in order to give grace to those who hear. In fact, verse 30, and I mentioned this last week, makes it clear that one of the ways we grieve the Holy Spirit is when we speak in a way that is destructive or detrimental to the people of God or the kingdom of God. You know this from your life, right? Discouraging words stick. Right? Discouraging words stick. Removing rooms around the house. We're moving the boys' bedroom to another place, and then Maddie's staying where she is, but we're getting another, the boys' old bedroom, we're getting ready to be a nursery again. And so we're getting all that kind of together. And the boys had put some stickers up on their wall. Just things that, you know, you go to the doctor now, you get a sticker. You go to the bank, you get a, I mean, you just get stickers. And so they had put some stickers up on the wall, superhero kind of things, small things over in the corner. We went to take the stickers off, and those things, they came off, but they left a little trace behind. You know that discouraging words are like stickers on a wall. They may come off, but they always leave a little behind. And one of the things that Paul is very clear about, and one of the things that we as a congregation have to be aware of, is that we must be cautious with the words that we use with each other. We must be. And it flows into the last thing, which is number five. Just be kind. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit who sealed you for the day of redemption. All bitterness and anger and wrath and insult and slander. It's just summing up everything that's come. Be removed from you along with all weaknesses, wickedness. Verse 32. And be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving one another just as God also forgave you. Words to one another ought to be dripping in kindness. They ought to be seasoned with love. And the idea is that if you are a person, if you just take those five things and put them all together, and you've written them down, you can look them or you can just listen. If we would be people who would speak the truth to one another, not speak out of anger, that we would each do our part, whatever that is, in the midst of this community. We would watch how we speak to each other and just say things that build up and don't tear down, and that we would be kind and compassionate to one another. Then you build a community that is the envy of those who are not believers in Jesus Christ. And you create a community that does what every one of us in this room needs, a community that builds us up.